Well, good morning, everyone. I'm Clark Urban, and I want to thank you very much for joining us for uh, the final session in our three-part series on the presidency of Harry S. Truman. This morning, we are delighted to welcome back to St. John's Professor Alan Lickman, Distinguished Professor of History at American University here in Washington. Professor Lickman joined the faculty of AU in 1973, the year he earned his PhD from Harvard. Over the years, he has published several hundred scholarly and popular articles and some 11 books, including his most recent one, The Case for Impeachment, which was a national bestseller, White Protestant Nation, The Rise of the American Conservative Movement, which was a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award, and he was the co-author of FDR and the Jews, which won the National Jewish Book Award Prize in American Jewish History, and was a finalist for the Los Angeles Times Book Prize in History. Professor Lichtman is perhaps best known for correctly predicting the outcome of every US presidential election since 1984, which of course includes the one in 2016. With that, please join me in welcoming back to St. John's to talk about President Truman's foreign policy. Professor Alan Lichtman. Thank you again, Professor. Over to you. Thank you, Clark. Uh, I am not going to predict the 2024 presidential election <clears throat> this morning. You have to pay me a lot more for me to do that prediction. But you know, having successfully predicted elections nearly 40 years, uh, you would think that's a wonderful thing. But all it does is every four years, make half the country really, really mad at me. And since I've been doing it for so long, the whole country is really, really mad at me. And I hope I have an audience today that uh, will forgive me for my past transgressions. You know, Harry Truman is one of those extraordinary presidents whose evaluation has substantially increased over time. You know, he left office largely derided with, you know, even lower approval ratings than Joe Biden has today. But uh, ultimately, he has been regarded as not a great, but perhaps a near great president by the consensus of historians and political authorities. And to a great extent, uh, that evaluation turns on Truman's approach to foreign policy and his meeting of the extraordinary challenges he faced in the 1940s and early 1950s. Well, you wouldn't have expected this from Harry Truman's uh, tragic and unexpected ascent to the presidency upon the death of Franklin Roosevelt at the very beginning of his unprecedented fourth term in April, 1945. Harry Truman was utterly unprepared to take on the task of being president of the United States. He'd only met a couple of times with FDR. He didn't even know about the Manhattan Project that was developing the atomic bomb. Upon becoming president, he had a press conference and he turned to the press corps and he said, boys, and sadly in those days, it was essentially boys, he said, boys, have you ever had a bale of hay fall on your head? Well, I felt like I had the moon, the sun, and the stars 
all fall on my head. That was the kind of sudden and extraordinary responsibility that Harry Truman had in the middle of a war that wasn't quite resolved in Europe. It would be resolved shortly and was still very much unresolved in the Far East. So he had to very quickly uh, learn on the job as president and meet the extraordinary challenges of World War II and the post-World War II world. And of course, uh, perhaps the momentous decision of any president was made by Harry Truman in uh, ending the war in the Far East by dropping atomic bombs on uh, Hiroshima and then shortly thereafter, Nagasaki. Historians have devoted millions of words to analyzing this decision. And the brief time I have, I'm not gonna go over those debates, but I'm gonna tell all of you one very important thing. And that is virtually every historian who's looked at this has got it wrong. They've asked the wrong question, you know, to quote the old, uh, Zen saying, unask the question. They've all asked the question virtually of why did Harry Truman decide to use the atom bomb? Questioning whether Japan could have been persuaded to uh, surrender without the bomb. Leave that aside. It's the wrong question. The right question is could Harry Truman have decided not to not? use the bomb because they're in the middle of a war to the death. This weapon had been developed every time in human history, a new weapon had been developed, the new weapon was used. Could Truman have made the decision not to use this weapon? And the odds are no, that was really not a decision that a responsible president could have possibly made. You know, we just learned, I'm gonna tie this into uh, the contemporary crisis we're facing. We just learned that Vladimir Putin has put the Russian nuclear forces on high alert. This is maybe a bluff. Maybe he feels himself cornered that he's made a huge mistake by locking himself into this misbegotten tragic invasion of Ukraine. But nonetheless, once again, as we did in 1962 during the Cuban Missile Crisis or in the early 80s during the war scare, once again, the world is facing the horror of a nuclear holocaust. But, you know, in a sense, the use of the atomic bombs in 1945 and their horrific results have been a deterrent to ever again using those horrific weapons. And we now have, we now have, Russia has warheads, single warheads, many hundreds of times more powerful than the Hiroshima and Nagasaki bombs. I'll repeat that. In <clears throat> single warheads, Russia has now, of course, thermonuclear hydrogen bombs 
many hundreds of times more powerful than the Nagasaki or Hiroshima bombs. So you can imagine, you know, were we to face nuclear war today, that uh, the only question would be, as some theorists have said, how high will the rubble bounce? And we can only hope that the horrors of Nagasaki and Hiroshima will continue to serve as a deterrent, but you know, unable to see in the mind of that madman Vladimir Putin, I think we do have some real reason to worry. Even as the war, World War II in Europe and the Far East were ending under the presidency of Harry Truman, American planners were deeply at work planning the post-World War II world. And this time, <clears throat> American analysts were not naive enough to repeat the mantra that was heard during World War I, that this was the war to end all wars. American planners were not naive enough to believe that. While they didn't expect another world war to follow the end of World War II, American planners deeply understood that the defeat of Nazism and fascism would leave us facing a new enemy, and that is communism and the Soviet empire, which of course greatly expands at the end of World War II. <clears throat> and planners were also deeply involved in trying to forestall to the post-war world the problems that they believed had led to the Second World War. Number one, the lack of a strong international peacekeeping and conciliation organization. And that of course led to the formation of the United Nations. And secondly, the insular nationalistic economies of the pre-World War II world that had led to the Great Depression, which of course contributed to the rise of the dictators and the onset of war. And so at Bretton Woods, they planned the development of the International Monetary Fund to avoid financial crises and the World Bank to first repair war-torn Europe and then help controversially, as it would turn out, with development in uh, developing nations to try to, the goal was to create this liberal, democratic, free trade economic order with the understanding, of course, that the main barrier to that was the Soviet Union and international communism. Well, during Harry Truman's first term, the United States developed two critical policies that would guide the nation through the Cold War period and has reemerged again as absolutely critical in light of Vladimir Putin's efforts to reestablish the Soviet empire and bulldoze democracies, just as uh, the USSR had done. And the first doctrine <clears throat> was that of containing the threat of communism. That is, Truman was faced with three alternatives. Number one, try to directly confront communism and defeat it, which of course risked World War III. 
same dilemma we face today. It's the reason I think right now, mistakenly, we don't have forces in the air or naval forces because we don't want to risk uh, starting a wider war with a nuclear power. Second choice was to just let it go, go back to old isolations. That, of course, was unacceptable. The third choice that became the lodestar of American foreign policy under Truman and subsequently was the containment of communism, kind of following a doctrine by the brilliant diplomat and historian George Kennan, uh, combating communism by putting pressure on critical counterpoints around the world. Second policy, and that policy, by the way, was kind of formalized in the Truman Doctrine in the context of aid uh, to Greece and Turkey that were facing communist pressures. You know, it's very interesting. Again, has a lot of resonance with contemporary issues. There was a lot of isolationism in the Republican Party and adopting the Truman Doctrine of containment and giving aid to Greece and Turkey was not an easy thing. And Truman went to Arthur Vandenberg, kind of the foreign policy dean, senator from Michigan of the Republican Party. He said, you know, guys like Bob Taft, uh, senator from Ohio and isolations, aren't gonna accept this. You know, how do I get this through a Senate that's gonna be difficult? And Vandenberg said, there's only one thing you can do, scare them to death, scare them to death about the communist menace. Second lodestar of policy <clears throat> was of course collective security. United States was not going to go it alone. We'd build a system of international restraints led of course by the UN, as well as military alliances highlighted by the formation of NATO early in Truman's second term, a mutual uh, defense pact. And of course, one of the justifications that Vladimir Putin has given for the savage invasion of a sovereign nation uh, was to prevent Ukraine from becoming part of NATO and moving NATO uh, right up to the borders of Russia. Of course, in the old days, the Soviet Union had no compunctions about putting uh, intermediate range nuclear missiles, not at the border, but pretty close, 90 miles from the United States to Cuba, where they could reach Miami, Atlanta, and lots of uh, US cities. So collective security was the second lodestar of foreign policy under Truman. And this remained controversial. Now, you know, we think of the Cold War, this confrontation between the US and uh, the Soviet Union now extended into the confrontation between the US and Russia. But the Cold War is a horribly misleading uh, nomenclature. Uh, the confrontation has turned hot and deadly with millions upon millions of casualties, maybe not in a direct warfare between the United States and Russia, but mostly in developing nations throughout the world, the war in Korea, the war in Vietnam. The highlights 
of that, with millions of Asian deaths combined in both of those two wars and nearly 100,000 uh, American deaths as well. And we're seeing, you know, now confrontation with Russia turning very, very hot, really for the first time in, in, in the heart of Europe itself and posing uh, the, the most severe threat to collective security since uh, the early Cold War, middle of the Cold War, it's the Cuban Missile Crisis, perhaps. But under Truman, the Cold War turned very hot in Korea when the Truman administration intervened to keep the communists of the North from overturning the pro-American, I won't say democratic government, South Korea was no Ukraine. It was <clears throat> pretty much a dictatorship, but like other dictatorships around the world, <clears throat> it was a pro-American <clears throat> dictatorship. The American force, and by the way, he did this without a declaration of war <clears throat> and without even a resolution of Congress did it under the auspices of the UN. It was officially called a police action, not a war. And he was able to get the auspices of the UN because the Soviets were boycotting the Security Council at the time. You notice uh, just a couple of days ago, uh, Russia vetoed a Security Council resolution to withdraw from Ukraine, but they were absent uh, for the resolution to support a police action in Korea. Then Truman had a momentous decision to make after American and South Korean forces pushed the North Vietnamese armies back to the 38th parallel, the border between North and South Korea, the line that had been drawn at the end of World War II, just as a line had been drawn between North and South Vietnam. Now, to be consistent with the policy of containment, he should have stopped there. Right? All right, we've contained communism. They're not going to take over the South. But he couldn't resist the temptation to cross the 38th parallel and try to roll back communism to liberate North Korea from the communists. And as we know, that mistaken decision led to a much wider war with the communist Chinese coming into the war and casualties enormously mounting, particularly for civilians in Korea, and the war bogging down to a stalemate between the United States and mostly the Chinese communists, right through the end of the Truman administration uh, after the election of 1952. Truman, of course, uh, was very unpopular at the time. <clears throat> the war had turned extremely unpopular. Americans were dying with seeming to seeming no end there. <clears throat> and Truman decided not to run in 1950. And it was pretty clear that whomever got the Republican nomination in 1952 would be the next president. And there was an enormous debate of monumental importance for America and the world for the Republican nomination. And the debate centered around whether we should continue collective security 
and containment or revert back to the old pre-war isolationism. And the isolationist Republican candidate was Senator Robert Taft, the author of the Taft-Hartley uh, Anti-Labor Act uh, of 1947. And he would have been easily the Republican nominee and the history of America and the world would have been fundamentally different, but for a political phenom, <clears throat> and that is Dwight Eisenhower, never run for political office, but was a hero of World War II. And Eisenhower made it very clear, I am running against Bob Taft because I think if Bob Taft becomes president, we're going to have World War III because he won't uh, uphold collective security. The Soviets are going to see that there's nothing to stop them from being adventurous, and eventually the superpowers will confront one another. So I'm in this to prevent a disaster to the United States and the world. And the two fought to a tie, literally to a, a standstill in the convention of 1952. They were tied, and ultimately Eisenhower got the nomination only because the convention sided with him on a credentials challenge to who should get the votes of the very large Texas delegation. Eisenhower had won the caucuses, which was supposed to determine the delegate votes. But very much apropos of something, again, we're seeing in our own time, the Republican state committee, which was pro-Taft, overturned the caucus results and appointed a pro-Taft delegation. Well, the convention ruled against the Taft delegation, seated the Eisenhower delegation that gave him the nomination and the continuation of the policies of containment and collective security. A couple of other critical developments of the Truman administration that I want to talk about. First was the rise of what became known as the invisible government, which was embodied in by far the most important uh, act on foreign and military policy in the history of the United States, the National Security Act of 1947 created the Unified Defense Department, the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and critical to the invisible government, it created the National Security Council. <clears throat> in effect, an advisory and policy-making body in foreign and defense matters that was accountable to no one but the president, unlike the Secretary of Defense or the Secretary of State and the under and deputy secretaries, the president could appoint and did appoint members of the National Security Council and the head, the National Security Advisor, with no need for Senate approval. The National Security Council reports only to the president and owes nothing to the Congress. Even more critical to the rise of the invisible government was the formation of the Central Intelligence Agency the CIA, uh, which had responsibility not only for gathering and analyzing intelligence, but also for conducting covert operations 
anywhere around the world. And unfortunately, it also illegally did so in the United States, but that's a whole other topic. So we now had much of the conduct of foreign affairs invisible, falling beneath the vision of the American people and even the vision of Congress. And as we learned in the Iran-Contra scandal of the Reagan administration, sometimes even below the visibility of the president of the United States. And throughout the post-Truman era, covert operations through CIA in places like uh, Cuba, Iran, Guatemala, Indonesia, even the nations behind the Iron Curtain became a critical element of American foreign policy. And now we're seeing, of course, Truman's conception carried out, continued by Eisenhower, of collective security being tested in a way that perhaps it's never been tested before, and that is with the Soviet invasion of Ukraine. As far as I've been able to tell, this is only the second time that one member of the UN has aggressively attacked and violated the sovereignty of another member. Last time that happened was when Iraq invaded Kuwait and took over Kuwait. And collective security worked there. George H.W. Bush put together a very effective international coalition that, of course, led by the United States, intervened in Kuwait and throughout Iraq and liberated Kuwait. Of course, Iraq was a relatively weak power relative to the United States and its allies, did not have nuclear weapons, but now we are faced with a similar and worse situation in Europe with this time Russia, a nuclear power with an enormous military capability similar to, but different from Kuwait, and an enormous test of collective security. And in some ways, collective security has worked in Ukraine. President Biden has just been blistered and, you know, critiqued by Republicans. It's absolutely shameful. You know, we're supposed to come together behind our president, regardless of our political difficulties when faced with you know, perilous international situation, but uh, Donald Trump, uh, the leader of the Republican Party, doesn't even begin to understand that. But fortunately, there are more responsible Republican voices, but they're not the spokesperson. They're not the leader. Uh, so the question is, Biden has held collective security. They've taken some very important steps to deal with the crisis, including we just learned of uh, sanctions on Putin himself and uh, removing a number of Russian banks from the essential SWIFT system, which means they can't conduct uh, international operations. But the question is, should collective security have done and do more? 
should there be a no-fly zone to keep uh, Russian planes out of Ukrainian territory? Should we, you know, blockade Ukraine to keep those so Russian landing ships from getting there? You know, should we months ago have put American and NATO troops in Ukraine on the border with Belarus and Russia and said, if you're coming into Ukraine, you gotta go through us. All of these are crucial questions posed by the collective security system begun under the presidency of Truman that really in many ways have kept the West democratic and free, but the pressures are now uh, enormous and collective security is truly being uh, put to the test. I will stop at this point and open the floor up for your questions. Feel free to ask me anything you want about American history and American politics, about Harry Truman, about the implications of his policies for today. Don't ask me about the opera and we will get along just fine. <laughs> Thank you so much, Professor. That was a great tour de force. And I love how you talked about present day events in the context of President Truman's foreign policy. Just masterful. Thank you. So many questions, um, and I'll try to get in as many as possible. This is just a, a conjecture question. Do you think if the circumstances of the war, World War II, had been different, meaning if the war in Europe had not been over essentially at that point. Do you think President Truman would likewise have been inclined to use nuclear weapons there as he did against Japan in Hiroshima and Nagasaki? Wow, you know, I love and I hate these counterfactual questions. I love them because I can say what I want and you can't disprove it. I hate them because you can't prove anything I say. And historians, you know, I'm not particularly an historian of nuclear policy, but historians who are, are divided. You know, some argue that racism was very much at the heart of the use of the atomic bomb and they wouldn't have used it against Germany. But, you know, we had the firebombing of Dresden, which, you know, took tens of thousands of lives. Again, the question is, would he not have not used the bomb? And, you know, I think had the situation been truly perilous and had we been facing the loss of tens of thousands of American lives in the invasion of Germany, I think he probably would have used it. But as I said, you know, that and a couple of bucks will get you on the subway. <laughs> so on the issue of rollback versus containment, which you talked about. Yes. An obvious question, but do you think, but for the fact that the Soviets acquired nuclear weapons of their own, President Truman's druthers would have been rollback rather than containment? Oh, I think that's absolutely right. In fact, <clears throat> after the formation of the CIA, they did try rollback in the Soviet Union and in the satellite states. Remember the famous speech by Winston Churchill in. Fulton, Missouri, which he called Fulton Sahara because he was having trouble finding a drink. But, you know, and he said, you know, an iron curtain has fallen over this part of Europe. Well, we had covert operations uh, following the formation of the CIA in 1947 behind the iron curtain in an effort to roll back communism. 
and they miserably fail. You know, the agents and the supporters that we infiltrated were captured or killed. Very difficult to infiltrate a closed society, you know, like uh, the Soviet empire. And, and, and those operations miserably fail. And also we saw in Korea that Truman did attempt to roll back communism beyond the 38th parallel. So had uh, the Soviets not exploded a nuclear bomb, uh, excuse me, atomic bomb, they didn't have nuclear weapons until the 50s, atomic bomb in 1949, we may have been much more aggressive in trying to roll back communism. But again, you know, can't prove them right and you can't prove them wrong. <laughs> Speaking of the Korean War, why do you think the Korean War, relatively speaking, speaking over the years, has become the forgotten war? Because it stalemated. It, it didn't solve anything. Yeah, it solved things to the extent that we did not allow the North Koreans to take over the South. But beyond that, it stalemated to no end with horrible casualties and horrible losses of life. It's not quite the Vietnam War, you know, which went on for 10 years and took more lives and seemed more, less justifiable than Korea. So on the one hand, it's not the war that everyone wants to point to as the big mistake, like Vietnam. <clears throat> but on the other hand, it's not the war that uh, you could point to as a great success. And of course, you know, the great controversy of the war, you know, second to crossing the 38th parallel, <clears throat> was the controversy between President Harry Truman and the commanding general in Korea, Douglas MacArthur. When the Chinese came in, MacArthur, who was this messianic anti-communist, said, this is Armageddon. This is the battle to end the world, and we need to use every means possible to fight the communists here and now even publicly criticized his commander in chief, which uh, led to his firing. And MacArthur went on to become an icon of the right. And here's another great irony, you know, eventually uh, American conservatives <clears throat> would become very aggressive in their foreign policy, you know, doing whatever it takes to fight communists, being very aggressive about the Vietnam War for example. And now, <clears throat> you know, led by Trump, Republicans are not all of them, but <clears throat> a good number seem to have made a complete reversal and not supporting uh, President Biden in his collective security efforts against Vladimir Putin. Um, a, a question about that. People tend to forget what you said earlier, that there was still uh, after the war, after World War II, considerable isolation sentiment in the United States. And it was not a foregone conclusion that there would be bipartisan support for the president's foreign policies. Can you talk a little bit more about that? That, that is a very important point. Even up to Pearl Harbor, the Republican Party was vehemently isolationist, at least for the most part. There are always exceptions, but for the most part, led by the two primary leaders of the Republican Party, former President Herbert Hoover and uh, Senator 
Robert Taft. You know, we talk about Donald Trump criticizing President Biden. And whatever you may think about that, it's not without precedent. Herbert Hoover spent a decade almost criticizing his successor, Franklin Roosevelt. He even keynoted the 1936 Republican National Nominating Convention with a blistering anti-New Deal speech. So the two leading lights of the Republican Party were very much isolationists. They had to suspend their isolationism, obviously, after Pearl Harbor, although they hoped that the United States would not get involved in the war in Europe. You know, it was the, it was the Japanese in one of the greatest blunders of history to attack us. You know, if you're going <clears> to, <throat> you know, attack the king, you got to kill the king. And they didn't come close to killing off the United States. They just stimulated us to get in the war and go all out uh, in wartime production. And isolationism returns after World War II. Uh, for example, Taft voted against NATO and was against the Marshall Plan to rebuild Europe. And with the Republicans taking over in 1952, it was by no means a foregone conclusion that the United States would not return to 1920s and 1930s style isolationism. And that was only resolved, <clears throat> as I discussed, by the narrowest of possible margins when Dwight Eisenhower, at the convention, defeated Robert Taft for the Republican nomination. <clears throat> Taft's isolationist supporters called it the Texas Steel and rankled about it for many, many, many years. And it was still this rear guard of isolationism within the Republican Party during the early years of the Eisenhower administration. But it was during the Eisenhower administration when you got this big turn of the Republican Party from what I would call insular isolationism to, excuse me, insular nationalism to aggressive nationalism. And then under Donald Trump, we saw this return to insular America first nationalism. In fact, you know, another irony of history, the primary isolationist organization in uh, the early 1940s before Pearl Harbor was called the America First Committee. And its primary spokesperson was the second most famous American after FDR, Lucky Lindy, Charles Lindbergh. And he also made one of the biggest blunders in history with a speech in September of 1941, before Pearl Harbor, an anti-war speech saying, not only shouldn't we get involved in the war, we shouldn't even aid the allies. Let the Nazis take over Britain, we don't care. <clears throat> and who did he blame for the push to war? The British, the Roosevelt administration, but most pointedly, the Jews. It was the Jews who were pushing us into war. There was tremendous anti-Semitism in America. But why was this a blunder? Because you kept it quiet. You weren't to be overtly anti-Semitic. It's a great movie, which I commend to all of you, called Gentleman's Agreement about covert anti-Semitism, where Gregory Peck poses 
as a Jew and confronts it. Well, you know, one of the great ironies, right after the, the Lindbergh speech, the Christian Century, a liberal Christian magazine that I'm sure, Clark, you know well, uh, published this editorial saying, in boardrooms, in hotels, in restaurants and clubs throughout the nation, Christians denounced the anti-Semitism of Charles Lindbergh, boardrooms, hotels, restaurants, and clubs that all excluded the Jews. Fascinating. So I think we've got time for a couple of more questions. Could sure. you just talk a little bit about the relationship between Truman and Churchill? Of course, Churchill and FDR had become essentially brothers. What about Truman and Churchill? Well, Churchill, of course, was out of power uh, when he made that uh, famous Iron Curtain speech as the guest of Harry Truman in Fulton, Missouri. And uh, so the alliance with Churchill was not as crucial, obviously, as it was during the war, but they were very much on the same page when it came to the threat of communism and the Soviet Union, which is why Truman brought Churchill to the United States to issue this warning about uh, how the Soviets were snuffing out freedom <clears throat> wherever they were able to obtain territory and that uh, we were now in a new confrontation between the forces of freedom and democracy and the forces of darkness and uh, slavery. And we're seeing the same thing today. You know, Boris Johnson, who politically, just like Churchill, politically, he was conservative, not a liberal like Truman. Boris Johnson's conservative, not a liberal like uh, Joe Biden. But we're seeing now once again the United States and the United Kingdom uh, coming together for collective security. And that's absolutely important. Got to have these two powers together. This is also have to have Germany and France. I saw an extraordinary report. I don't know if it's true. You know, I talked about the possibility of real military intervention in Ukraine. I saw a report that of all countries, Portugal was sending troops to Ukraine. I don't know if it's true, but if it's true, it's amazing. I'll say, gee whiz. Yeah, Portugal. <laughs> Portugal. <laughs> well, final thought. I can't resist that. I have to ask, would your system of predicting the outcome of presidential elections have predicted the outcome of 48? Yes, it would have. Absolutely. Because <clears throat> here's the beauty of my system, um, if I may say so. <laughs> it <laughs> ignores the polls, the pundits, pays no attention to them. If I had listened to the pundits in 2016, of course, I would have been totally wrong. But you can imagine, too, predicting a Trump win in 2016 did not make me very popular here in uh, Washington, D.C. or the American University. But, you know, I always tell people and it's hard for them to understand these are predictions, not endorsements. And, of course, I correctly predicted Biden in 2020. But the objective situation did point to the re-election of Truman. I'll tell you one other great story, if you have a minute. Uh, Truman's campaign manager was a young naval officer whose name will be familiar to you, Clark Clifford, later yeah. became Secretary of Defense, succeeding Robert McNamara was Secretary of Defense during the Tet Offensive. 
And uh, Truman, you know, was traveling around the country on his whistle stop train tour. And he was getting on the train and he saw Clifford with a, this is a time or newsweek, one of the news magazines under his arm. Truman says, let me see that. And Clifford says, no, 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 I don't want you to see that. Truman grabs it. And there's a story in there. And they had asked the 40 leading pundits in America who they thought would win in 1948. And of course, all 40 said, Truman was going to lose to Tom Dewey. And Truman said, ah, I don't care about that. I know every one of those guys, and not one of them could pound sand in a rat hole. <laughs> That's terrific. Professor Alan Lickman, thank you so much for being with us and giving us such a terrific talk about President Truman's foreign policy and tying it in so perfectly to the events of today, showing that the um, post-war architecture that President Truman developed in the 40s is very much with us today and is very much under peril today, thanks to what's going on in Ukraine. Absolutely. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Take care. Take care.